I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. These days, everyone seems to be enlisted in the culture wars, whether they like it or not. To instruct our kids that they should be one of these genders. But that isn't the point. The fact is... That, that is the point. The fact is that people identify in different oh, ways. You are a white privileged male who has oh, no experience. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, can I just... I can't I, help what I am. I was born like this. It's an immutable... So he was like the Euroskeptic of his day, taking on the establishment. He was a and he slave won. owner and slave and trader, Nigel. There is no justification for statues that immortalise slavery, immortalise... Things change, of course, and change creates uncertainties. But why does the debate seem so angry and intolerant? Well, one of my colleagues thinks we can find some answers in novels written 150 years ago. Never had they believed so unswervingly in the correctness of their judgments, their scientific deductions, their moral convictions and beliefs. Entire centres of population, entire cities and peoples became smitten and went mad. All were in a state of anxiety, and no one could understand anyone else. Each person thought that he alone possessed the truth. And suffered agony as he looked at the others, beating his breast, weeping and wringing his hands. No, no one knew to make the subject of judgment or how to go about it. No one could agree about what should be considered evil and what good. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today... Did Dostoevsky predict the culture wars? By the way, and I don't want to intimidate you at all, but if you could see the big pile of books behind me on my sofa, significant proportion of those are books about the Russian nihilists of the late 19th century. Home, that's not true. You're trying to psych me out. It is actually, it is actually true. It's going to be like a university tutorial, isn't it? Yes, with you as the lecturer. <laughs> you're going to have to get used you're, to having... You're, you're my exceptionally terrifying, precocious student. Exactly. That's the way to think about it. <laughs> That's the way to think about it. You've got it. I'm James Marriott. I'm a columnist and a book reviewer at The Times. I've been doing it for about four years now, and my columns tend to focus on culture, society, and especially the culture wars. James, we'll come on to your theory about culture wars in this podcast, and in particular, what it is you think we can learn from one great Russian writer. You said you're very interested in the culture wars. What do you understand by the term culture wars? I always think the best way to think about the term culture wars is that they are 
basically battles over new moral ideas, new ideas about what is good and what is bad. And that encompasses identity politics, the limits of free speech, what we think about our history, especially in Britain, the history of empire. I've just always been fascinated by what people think is good, what people think is bad, why they think those things, and why suddenly people's idea of what is good and bad changes, which is kind of a moment that I think we're going through now. And I think that change, or the fight over that change, is probably the simplest, maybe an oversimplified description of what the culture wars are. So essentially, the culture wars are forms of a transition between states of being and states of thinking. Yes, I think that's a fair description. Now, when did you first become aware of what we refer to these days as culture wars? I mean, I think I heard about it first in relation to the debate about abortion in the United States a few years back, but I imagine that your introduction to it was slightly different. So I encountered culture wars at university, and I think I was at university in quite an interesting, significant time. I was at Oxford University between 2011 and 2014. And when I arrived, I found my university experience almost completely apolitical. Nobody ever mentioned politics. And then suddenly, by the time I left, all the kinds of things we're still discussing today, identity politics, free speech, battles over who is and isn't allowed in which particular internet forum, all this stuff was just absolutely raging and had become really furious. And this was the time when you started seeing these kind of videos of fights on American campuses. This was the scene at another Ivy League bastion of privilege, Yale, just a day earlier. Students there are demanding that a dormitory named in honor of an advocate of slavery be renamed and that faculty who refused to ban Halloween costumes that some students found offensive be fired. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I stop. don't agree with that. Then, then why the f*** you accept the position? Because who I the f*** hired you? I have a different that's a clip from a 2015 Vice documentary on student protests in the USA. A year or so earlier, back here, James began to notice something. I recall at university a Facebook group called Country Living, which was spelt the rude way, not the way that the magazine about rural life is spelt. It was a magazine, but it had this sort of associated Facebook group, which was this forum for discussing identity politics, differences of oppression, your experiences of oppression, of racism sexism, ableism. Every couple of weeks, someone would be kicked out of this Facebook group for saying the wrong thing. There'd be a petition to reinstate them. More people would be kicked out. There were endless complaints. Free speech wasn't being respected. There wasn't a sufficient openness of debate. It was really, it was really furious. And it's sort of extraordinary how exotic it seemed at the time, because I remember Vice running a piece on it, and it was called Inside England's Most Outrageous College Feminist Facebook Group. And the tone of the Vice piece was basically, this is completely bananas, what on earth is going on? And this is, this is Vice, which is a publication that's always considered itself very with it. James, did you know you were on a feminist Facebook page? Yes. Did you consider yourself to be a feminist? I think I would have done. I hope I would have done. I certainly do now, and I think I would have done at that point. I never joined. It was impossible not to be aware of it. And I had friends who were in it and I would look over their shoulders and we just scrolled through it together. I'm fascinated because, of course, when I was at university, no such possibility existed. You'd had to have gone along to a meeting to be excluded from anything. The most famous one, which caused immense anger and also hilarity at the time, was I remember one particular student asking whether it was all right to wear these 
at the time, it was very fashionable to wear these lensless hipster glasses. So it looked like you're wearing glasses, but the glasses didn't have lenses. It was fashionable to wear glasses with no glass in them. Exactly. It was a sort of preppy, nerdy sort of fashion thing that was going on at the time. And she asked the group, was it acceptable for her to wear glasses without glass? Because um, she wondered whether it would be ableist and insulting or oppressive towards people. Now, I imagine this was all a joke, right? This was serious. I I think it's possible to emphasise the importance of this stuff too much. But this was very angry students discovering politics, discovering all these things for the first time in the very new, very furious, very intense atmosphere of a Facebook group. And although it's a particularly extreme example and unfair to pick on things like that when, you know, there were many more sane and sensible things going on in this movement, but I guess it's that incredibly small argument that seems completely baffling and almost incomprehensible to people from the outside that nevertheless in this kind of small space on social media acquires this insane importance that seemed so prescient about it and that seems so much to anticipate a lot of what I have spent, it feels like virtually my entire adult life, watching and being (laughs) part of on social media. Did the glassless person get kicked out of the group or...? Did glasslessness triumph? They conceded the point and said that they were not going to wear the glasses because it would be disregarding the denigration that the group suffers due to glasses. They can't just switch off like I'm able to, I think was the statement they made. And not just because it's a really stupid thing to wear. (laughs) Well, yes, I suppose in the intervening decades since I left university, opinions on lensless glasses have probably changed for the better. This is, as you quite rightly say, this is an extreme example, but it is illustrating something that you think is uh, much bigger, which was illustrated in a much more mainstream way, you think, in 2014. What happened in 2014 was that Brendan O'Neill, this sort of right-wing controversialist, was due to speak at Christchurch College Oxford in a debate over abortion. He was due to give the pro-choice side of the argument, but the debate was cancelled because the objection basically was that this debate was going to be between two men discussing abortion and this was viewed as intolerable and therefore the debate was cancelled. I think some scepticism over two men debating abortion is probably completely reasonable. But he regarded it as as being a sign, did he, of a malaise. Yes, he regarded it as a kind of symbol of this new what he would characterise as this new student culture of groupthink. I recall seeing this Spectator cover story by Brenton O'Neill. The Spectator. 22nd of November, 2014. Free speech is so last century. Today's students want the right to be comfortable. Brendan O'Neill's 2014 article is being read here by a producer. Students' union's no-platform policy is expanding to cover pretty much anyone whose views don't fit prevailing groupthink. Have you met the Stepford students? They're everywhere, on campuses across the land, sitting stony-eyed in lecture halls or surreptitiously policing beer fueled banter in the uni bar. They look like students, dress like students, smell like students. But their student brains have been replaced by brains bereft of critical faculties and programmed to conform. To the untrained eye, they seem like your average book-devouring, ideas-discussing, H&M-adorned youth. But anyone who spent more than five minutes in their company will know that these students are far more interested in shutting debate down than opening it up. I was attacked by a swarm of Stepford students this week. Ever since Brendan O'Neill published this article about intolerant students, he has had a very flourishing career writing extremely similar things over and over and over again for the past decade. 
And this article that he wrote about his experience, I think is this sort of important marking point where this minor thing that so far had mainly been bubbling away at universities probably began to reach a wider public in the culture at large for the first time. And then it all became crystallised for you, didn't it, in the person of a 19th century Russian writer, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky was one of the two great, in my opinion, Russian writers of the 19th century with Leo Tolstoy. Dostoevsky was the author, most famously, of Crime and Punishment. His other books, The Brothers Karamazov, The Idiot, Demons, all analyse the spiritual, intellectual, social and religious turmoil of the time which he lived. What kind of society was it at that time? 19th century Russia was basically stuck between East and West, this very sort of archaic, unreformed, autocratic state that up until the 1860s had enslaved this vast proportion of its population, the serfs, had been essentially slaves. And the serfs were liberated in the early 1860s, and this had kind of produced this sort of moral revolution. There was suddenly this whole new class of person in society who'd previously been slaves. There were endless frustrated reform movements to liberalise the Russian state. There was a lot of political terrorism. Another interesting thing about this time, especially the time Dostoevsky was writing in, was that it was a time of basically unprecedented free speech. For almost all of its history, Russia had been an incredibly oppressive, incredibly intolerant society with a strict state censorship regime. But under the liberal czar Alexander II, free speech was expanded. So suddenly, all this turmoil, all these ideas about how society should be, had this completely new outlet to be discussed in these sort of magazines and newspapers that were springing up. And it was just an amazingly sort of febrile time. So you have this turmoil of ideas, newly liberated, although you still got an autocratic regime in the following the emancipation of the serfs. And he then observes a phenomenon that you think you partially observe. So let's go through how he fits into your story, your understanding of the culture wars from one of his great novels that you were reading recently. I was reading Dostoevsky's novel Demons recently, and I was just struck by this little thing that struck me as kind of almost amazingly modern. So at the beginning of the novel, there are these two provincial intellectuals, Varvara Petrovna and Stepan Trofimovich. And near the beginning of Demons, they travel to St. Petersburg and decide they're going to try and join the St. Petersburg intelligentsia, gain this sort of social credibility in fashionable intellectual circles. So what they do, basically, to ingratiate themselves is they find themselves adding signatures to petitions denouncing outrageous acts by various other intellectuals. And this basically is how you get ahead in St. Petersburg at this time. All these petitions are going around, people have done outrageous reactionary things, and you sign a petition, and they are, I guess, in what we would call in modern terms, cancelled. The kind of irony of this experience is that Stepan is himself cancelled when he expresses insufficiently progressive views about art. There's this kind of scene where he claims that all the other progressive ideas that it's fashionable to embrace at this time in St. Petersburg are correct, and then refuses to say that art is inferior to politics, which was a huge debate at the time. And for that one tiny lapse of progressive opinion is basically expelled from St. Petersburg. 
Naturally, it was impossible to remain in Petersburg any longer, the more so since the ultimate fiasco befell Stepan Trofimovich. Couldn't restrain himself and began proclaiming the rights of art, whereupon people began to laugh even more loudly at him. At his final reading, he conceived the notion of impressing them with his eloquence in civic matters, imagining that he could touch their hearts and relying on their respect for his banishment. He expressed unconditional agreement with the uselessness and absurdity of the word fatherland. He agreed with the idea that religion was harmful, but he loudly and firmly asserted that boots were inferior to Pushkin, and even much more so, he was mercilessly hissed, so much so that then and there he burst into tears in public. Poor old Stepan Trofimovich. Did you identify with Stepan Trofimovich? I know what it's like to be in trouble on Twitter. So I suppose I felt a little kind of sympathy from the 21st century to the 19th. But I just thought that little kind of social mechanism, which everybody gets so furious about nowadays, that we call cancel culture, that we view as this terrifying modern innovation that's going to destroy free speech and completely change society. This isn't a particularly modern thing, but just seems to be inherently human, because I think it's something that you can kind of discover popping up again and again in history, this kind of sudden discovery of loads of new ideas that suddenly seem incredibly morally important, and this feeling of total intolerance for people who just can't get on board with those ideas or don't get on board sufficiently. What I find interesting in what you've just said and relating it back to what you were talking about with your strange Facebook group at a university is the way in which the argument comes about who most virtuously represents the position of the underprivileged. So as I understand what you've said, it is that the argument is art must be subordinate to the suffering of the serfs. It's the suffering of the serfs we must, and the peasantry we must talk about. And if you don't talk about that in the right way, in that case, you're a useless person. And similarly, if you don't understand why pretending to be a person with myopia is insulting to myopic people, then you don't represent the proper levels of solidarity. Is that broadly right? Yes, I think so. And I think if this isn't getting too deep into things, I think it's been very convincingly argued that this moral preoccupation with the rights of the oppressed has its roots basically in the Christian history of Britain and the United States. Christianity obviously is full of these ideas about the mighty shall be put down from their seat, the humble and meek shall be lifted up. And I think it's very convincing to say that the particular arguments we're having at the moment and the particular arguments that were had in 19th century Russia have this sort of underlying Christian theological aspect to them. But that might be getting a bit deep. Just possibly. So let's park that one there and in a moment come back to some other thoughts James has on the culture wars. But first... Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Music 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. While ruminating on the literature of Fyodor Dostoevsky and his relevance to modern Britain, James came across the work of a more modern Russian, a historian by the name of Peter Turkin. Peter Turkin was born in 1957. He was at university in the 80s, and in the early 2000s, he started publishing these books about his theories about the historical dynamics of society. Traditional historians have done a great job describing past human societies and how they changed. What they haven't done so well is explaining why human societies changed in some particular ways and not others. He calls his science of history clear dynamics. He basically, through feeding data into computers and studying it, is trying to work out what circumstances in societies tend to cause social upheaval, revolution, revolt and rebellion. Historians are proposing explanations for why things happened in history. The problem is that there are not too few explanations. In some sense, there are too many. His basic thesis is one that he's called elite overproduction, which is that periods of turmoil for society emerge when you are overproducing elites, which is to say you're providing lots and lots of young people with very high-level educations, very high-level expectations for their position in society, but then society itself doesn't have enough positions for those very highly educated, very ambitious young people to fill. And he says this is the kind of, this disappointed intellectual middle class is the precondition for all periods of social disturbance. And I don't think that 
is necessarily that controversial if you think about the circumstances that gave rise to the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution as well, which which we're talking about now. Except that when you were at Oxford, the elite that had the Facebook group are people who will take up elite positions. This is true, but it depends how you define elite. And a lot of, the, a lot of those people would have been, and I think were being prepared to be disappointed in their expectations. So a lot of those people would have assumed that this education, I mean, the very best university in the country once upon a time would have absolutely guaranteed you your own house, economic security, raising a family with no particular fear or trouble. It would also perhaps have guaranteed you a comfortable, well-paid job on if you wanted to work in a newspaper or for the BBC. And suddenly this kind of elite position at the top of society because of various factors, because of the economy, because of the decline of the press. A lot of these options were falling away. And I think a lot of these people were people who, if they'd been at university 30 years previously, would have absolutely relied on gliding into a job. Obviously, there's not people we should feel particularly sorry for, but there is an expectations gap and a sort of opportunity gap there. How did you relate what Turkin was writing back to Dostoevsky? So a real theme in Dostoevsky's writing are these kind of angry, disaffected, poor, very educated young men. So this is certainly the case in Demons. And then Dostoevsky's most famous hero or anti-hero, Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment, who commits this kind of extraordinary double murder with an axe at the beginning of the novel. I don't think that's giving away any spoilers. (laughs) Not not after 150 years, no. (laughs) And the fact it's called Crime and Punishment would probably lead you to suspect that not everything goes perfectly well at the beginning of the book. But yeah, Raskolnikov is kind of archetypal of this period of Russian history. He's from this family who are really struggling to support him financially. He's living in this tiny, horrible, garret-like room that's really dirty. He's being educated at the university. You know, university education at this time should theoretically have guaranteed you financial stability, cultural prestige, but he doesn't have any of these things. He's poor, he's disaffected, he is what at Russia in the time was called, well, he may be, uh, in what what at Russia at the time was called a nihilist, which is this sort of generation of very disaffected young people who basically scorned and spurned everything the previous generation stood for and viewed it as meaningless and pointless and a total total charade. And this kind of nihilism was this massive concern for a lot of Russian writers at this time, the way that young people, disaffected with society, rejected all the moral values of the previous generation. Let's talk about what kind of divide it is we're looking at here. Part of your suggestion here is that there is a generational divide because, of course, the huge explosion in the number of people undertaking higher education has been in the course of the last 30 or 40 years. Yes, absolutely. So if these ideas aren't necessarily economic ideas, I think they're, I think they're rooted in economics. And I think if you're thinking about why we're having a culture war now, not, say, 15 or 20 years ago, I think it's pretty obvious. You have to look at the rise of student debt, the vastly increasing numbers of people at university, the housing crisis, a lot of very educated, very intelligent young people who know about ideas, who are very disappointed with the society that they have found themselves in. You don't see it as more of a class divide then? In what way? In the sense that a lot of the discussion and debate in Britain politically is about red wall versus not red wall. That's interesting. I personally wouldn't. I think 
cultural revolutions, and I think revolutions in general in history, I think there's a tendency to think of them as driven by people from further down the class spectrum. But actually, I think historically, revolutions tend to be driven by a disaffected middle class. You know, this is the case, especially the French Revolution. The leaders of the French Revolution weren't peasants. They were people who were very educated. I, I think that's the kind of formula for cultural turmoil that Peter Turkin is getting at. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree with him there. I'm not sure historically that revolutions necessarily come from the less educated, very poorer sections of society. Towards a, a final thought, partially what's interesting about this is the notion of finding things that are useful and parallels to today in a novel, for example, in this particular case, or a series of novels, by a writer in the 1870s. I mean, what does that make you think? I think it means that we can understand ourselves better and think of some of these impulses that we view as terrifying and completely irrational and new as actually maybe a part of human nature, I think also if you have people as intelligent and as brilliant as Dostoevsky who've lived through similar moments and know what it's like to live through this period of this total turmoil of social ideas, those can be people we can look to and they can help us understand what's going on, think through the consequences, think where all this might be going or how we might deal with it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, James Marriott, a columnist and book reviewer at The Times. You can read more of James's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer today was Will Rowe, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. A special thanks to Eugene Petrov for reading the sections of Dostoevsky's writings. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, do please leave us a review. It helps others find the podcast and maybe tell a friend or two as well, the old-fashioned way. See you again soon. <laughs>